Big news story that is uh, making international news today is that Purdue Pharma, the makers of OxyContin, uh, the drug widely seen as igniting the opioid crisis, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy on Sunday night. And here to talk about it, David Yerlich. He is the head of clinical pharmacology at the University of Toronto. David, we've had you on the show numerous times talking about the opioid crisis, and you do know a lot about this, unfortunately, because you see it every day, the result of, of you know, um, opioids being, um, I guess, misrepresented by the pharmaceutical companies out there to doctors who prescribe them, and now we've got a crisis. You tweeted out this morning, name a pharmaceutical company responsible for more misery, death, and societal ruin than than Purdue Pharma. I'll wait. I'm guessing uh, not a lot of, uh, just a bunch of crickets. Uh, well, there have been a few responses. I, uh, I didn't uh, realize that the tweet would uh, trigger the interview, but uh, I, I mean, I, I do feel that way. I mean, the, you know, this, um, it's, I think it's hard to overstate the role that Purdue Pharma had in, in the genesis of today's opioid crisis. I mean, the opioid crisis today is not so much about drugs like OxyContin. Um, it's about people with addiction you know, dying by the thousands because of a, of a poisoned drug supply. But if you go back a few decades, the seeds of that were clearly sown in the early and sort of mid mid to late 90s in particular, um, with the widespread promotion of OxyContin, which was, which was Purdue's flagship drug. Yeah, and you've seen the result of this. Uh, you know, you see it on a, a daily basis. You've talked to the government about what to do about our opioid crisis. We've heard that uh, Johnson & Johnson, they um, were ordered by a judge to uh, pay uh, $572 million U.S. to help address the problem that they helped create with regard to their hand in the opioid drug crisis. Uh, Pardue Pharmacy, this bankruptcy filing apparently was part of the settlement deal, and it'll allow them to settle, but it'll also protect the family. Um, it will provide, they say, more than $10 billion in funding to address the opioid crisis, which will uh, include settlements with 24 state attorneys attorneys general and officials from five U.S. territories and multi-district litigation. That sounds like a lot of money. Is that just a drop in the bucket when it comes to battling the opioid crisis, though? Uh, oh, it really is. I, mean, I think you you mentioned uh, in passing uh, this, the idea behind the bankruptcy uh, proposal here is it offers the company protection. I mean, it will minimize its legal exposure in somewhere in the order of 2,600 lawsuits around the U.S. against the company and its owners. Uh, the Sackler family, and uh, as I understand it, the terms involve a payout of somewhere in the order of 10 to 12 billion, with the family itself paying somewhere between three and three and a half. Now, um, that is a lot of money. Um, it is nowhere near enough to um, settle the crisis. Um, uh, I mean, it would, to be fair, it'd be a permanent stain on the company and the family that owned it. And in the minds of many, and I, I think I sort of would sort of share this. Uh, they, they really played a huge role in the development of the crisis that we now have. The, you know, they promote. 2007, they acknowledged. They, in fact, pleaded guilty in the U.S. to the felony of, of, you know, misleading doctors about the effectiveness and safety of their drug. And I guess one of the things that um, that I find a little bit distressing about this um, proposal. You know, the family, you know, the family paying three to five billion dollars is a lot of money, but they're worth somewhere in the order of 13 billion. And I, I think they would continue to sell OxyContin around the world under 
another company they own called Mundi Pharma. So I think it's fair to ask, is this a sufficient legal reckoning? But it is also worth pointing out that suing drug companies isn't going to solve the crisis any more than cutting opioid prescriptions is going to solve it. It's a much more complex and multifaceted problem than just pills and companies. Wow. You uh, believe that this uh, family is so morally corrupt that they would go on selling Oxycontin under a different uh, company name elsewhere in the globe. Uh, I, I'm not going to say morally corrupt, but I, I would. If people want to read a bit this, they can read. There's a piece in the LA Times a couple of years ago entitled "Oxycontin Goes Global," mm. and it's uh, free to access. But it makes the it tells the story about how the family, you know, in the face of declining revenues in North America, um, courtesy of doctors finally realizing that our decades-long experiment with opioids for chronic pain has not turned out quite as we were told it would by the company and its agents in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, uh, they're starting to sell their drugs elsewhere in Asia, in South America, in Europe. Um, and they're using a lot of the same tactics they used to promote it in North America. And they stand to make many billions more uh, from other countries. Um, so uh, I, I think, um, you know, I think it would be ideal if part of the solution involved North America's problem not metastasizing around the globe, as it seems to already be doing. Yeah, the Sackler family, you'd mentioned that they uh, were going to pay out 3 to uh, three to $3.5 billion on this. Um, and that seems like a lot of money. Uh, but we don't even know how much money they have because they're believed to uh, put a lot of their money in holdings outside the U.S., yeah, I, I don't know much. I, I do know that they they won't be eating ramen noodles right. that way. I mean, I think they're going to be quite comfortable if they get off the hook. You know, if no one, if, if all they do is cough up a few billion dollars uh, and no one goes to jail, uh, they will still have a, a very comfortable existence going forward, especially if they're still generating revenue from the sale of their product in other countries. Um, and it is it does seem... Uh, Distasteful, I guess, is maybe maybe it's sort of the easiest word to throw at this. You know, and I, I, I've wondered. I don't know how many young men, especially men of color, are in jail for selling cannabis, mm -hmm. for example. Uh, and it isn't it curious how uh, uh, companies um, can you know, wreak so much harm on society and profit so handsomely, and no one really ever seems to go to prison. Yeah, and this is one of those uh, drug situations where you can't even pinpoint a demo that's that is being affected by this because it's affecting everyone. Oh, there's no one listening to your show who hasn't been touched by this in some way, whether it's someone who has in their family or their circle of friends a person with addiction or someone who's suffering from chronic pain and maybe doing well or maybe not doing so well with opioid therapy. Um, but yeah, it's, it is, it is a, a truly pervasive problem that touches society in ways that we sometimes don't even appreciate. So Purdue Pharma is uh, filing for bankruptcy. We know that they're expected to be fierce uh, uh, contest to this um, by uh, Massachusetts and New York. Do you know why they refuse to settle and have the uh, Sacklers get off, uh, you know, with just a $10 billion slap on the wrist? Uh, I don't have the, in, I don't know the inner workings. I, I do know that at least 24 states are yeah. opposed to the settlement offer. And I think it'll be decided sometime in October, if I understand it. I suspect they're opposition relates in part to the perception that this is a slap on the wrist and it's just the family's way. I mean, presumably the family and their lawyers um, recognize that they are in very, very deep here and they're going to have to make some 
sacrifices to uh, try and resolve the issue. But um, I think for um, for states like Massachusetts, and the, the Attorney General of Massachusetts has been very vocal on this issue, and others, um, you know, they can't pay enough for the harm that they have created. And, you know, and, and it's not just promoting the drug, it's turning a blind eye, for example, to sales data that screamed organized crime. You know, when one pharmacy is cranking out millions of pills, that's suspicious. Ignoring or minimizing early reports of the abuse of their product, there's lots of reason to suspect that um, a good deal of the crisis might have been averted uh, if the company and its owners had been a little more responsible in the early days of it back in, say, 2000, 2001. Who should be responsible for for the ongoing addiction issue? Uh, I think we need a massive societal investment in addiction care. Uh, There's a, you know... um, there's a, and I don't know what it's going to cost, but it's you know, North America wide. It's presumably hundreds of billions of dollars. Um, the, uh, you know, to the extent that people are dying by the thousands, and in Canada, probably four thousand this year, and in the U.S., some forty or fifty thousand this year, um, be, because of drugs like fentanyl and related chemicals that are coming from China and poisoning our drug supply, I think it's in, in critical that the government get involved in uh, trying to address this issue. Um, and there are lots of things that could be done. Um, you know, you hear talk about. Uh, supervised consumption sites. I mean, these uh, people have different opinions on these, but they really do save lives. And they're the sort of thing that governments should should support, not oppose. Um, these things pay for themselves. And while there are aspects of, of sites like that that people will take issue with, I mean, they really do make a lot of sense. If you view this, if you view the crisis, the addiction crisis we are now in, mm-hmm. as, a, as a public health problem, um, which it is, and you view drug use as a health issue rather than a criminal issue, we should be treating it as a health issue, and the government should, first and foremost, I think, be responsible for this. I mean, it's not hyperbole to say that Health Canada and the FDA in the U.S. played a role themselves in helping promote this by allowing drugs like Oxy to come on the market with very little evidence to support the claims of effectiveness and safety. One other thing the government could do that I think would be critical, and I wrote a piece about this and co-authored a piece in the Toronto Star last year about it, is decriminalizing the use of drugs. I'm not saying make it, you know, legal for everyone to go buy Oxy at the grocery store, but I, I mean, you know, when someone comes to the hospital and they smoke or someone comes to the hospital and they drink too much, the doctor's job is to help that person um, and ideally encourage them to drink less or smoke less or replace their cigarettes with nicotine gum or a patch or what have you. We treat it as a health problem. We don't treat drug use as a health problem to the extent that we should because there's still this perception that it's some kind of a moral failing or it's criminal activity. It's, it's, it's criminal activity because we've criminalized it. Uh, if, we were to, if we were to treat it as, as a sane society should, as a health problem that, um, th- that when treated as one and approached as one as opposed to a crime um, could literally save the lives of thousands of our citizens, I think that would, be, that would be probably one of the most important things we could do. And so back to your question, I, I reflect um, back and say that I think the government has a lot of say here and a lot of sway, and some of what needs to be done is unpopular, but if we don't do it, people are going to die by the thousands every single year going forward. And um, I'm sure some of your listeners will know someone 
as I do, um, uh, who have died uh, in this crisis, and it's going to continue. I think it's interesting how uh, drug use, if uh, doctors at the helm, seems to be okay in our minds, but drug use, if you're dependent, seems to be absolutely appalling. Are you surprised by the lack of compassion that we have at society at large for opioid addicts? Um, I'm not, I don't know. I, 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 I'm uh, surprised. Uh, I think we are... Uh, that's a tough question. I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised, you know, I'm not surprised any more than um, I'm surprised that someone maybe looks askance at someone who smokes, uh, you know, you know uh, I look uh, at people who smoke and I sort of think that there's someone who maybe made a bad decision and boy, if they could only just stop, wouldn't they be a whole lot better off and a whole lot healthier? I don't really judge the person, but I think I think drugs have a different connotation. It's related to the, related to the criminalization of it. And I think, you know, in 2001 in Portugal, they you know, faced with rising rates of HIV and people dying from opioid overdoses in large numbers, they said, you know what, let's treat this as a health problem and not a criminal one. And now, and they decriminalized the use of drugs. And if you were caught using drugs, you weren't thrown in jail, um, but you were offered some help. Mm-hmm. And, and so now I, I think the stats more or less, you know, out of every 100,000, um, let me do the math here. We, we, we are about 20, or in Canada, we have about 20 to 30 times uh, more deaths per capita from opioids than Portugal does. And I think that is in part due to the fact that opioids are prescribed differently, and they have been for 20 years in Canada compared to Portugal. But I think it's more important uh, that Portugal treats this as a health problem, and uh, I hope that Can- Canadian politicians will start to do the same. I wonder how much money they're saving as well, because I bet you they're, it would be impressive. Good question. Don't know the answer to that. Um, Dr. Yerlich, I want to ask you if you think that there's any signs that big pharma companies are actually learning a lesson from all this, the Johnsons and Johnsons, uh, the Purdue, because it, one wonders when they see the headlines. Uh, I, I think the lesson, especially if this proposal, this bankruptcy proposal goes through uh, and dissolves, uh, you know, a thousand or more of the lawsuits that, uh, that face Purdue, I think the lesson that will be learned is similar to the lesson that was learned by Purdue in 2007, which was uh, big fines are, um, and sometimes some, criminal, some legal exposure are just the cost of doing business. Uh, and, uh, you know, Purdue has made, at, at last count, $35 billion with a B from the sale of this drug. And so, um, you know, if they had to cough up $10 billion, um, yeah, a lot of money. But uh, it's still quite a lot of residual earnings from a drug that um, has helped some people, but I think it's fair to say it's harmed, it's caused a lot more societal harm and a lot more harm even to many um, so-called legitimate pain patients than people realize. So no, I think I think uh, I don't think pharma's um, learning. I mean, these are companies; they're in they're in business to make money. They make money by selling products, and they will do what they have to do to sell their products. Maybe they'll be a little more careful uh, when it comes to um, uh, you know, if not breaking the law, then doing uh, things that are ethically questionable or morally questionable when selling their drugs. But I think un- until they're really and truly held to account, they probably won't. So do we need to see, like, heads of that, that company, the family members, going to jail? Um, if they committed crimes, I would say sure. Uh, again, I don't have all the legal yeah. facts here. I'm not a lawyer. Um, and I don't think throwing them in jail just because they owned a company is the right thing to do. But to the extent 
you know, if, if the, the board of that company, it's a privately held company, and the board was populated with no small number of family members over the years, to the extent that they um, committed crimes, if they did, I, I would say yes. Well, I mean, if you purposely that, misled someone about the addictive quality of your drug, seems kind of illegal. Well, so that was part of the 2007 judgment in the U.S. and Canada, Purdue and Canada is quite quite quick to separate itself from Purdue in the U.S., uh, mm. even though they are both called Purdue and they both made OxyContin. Uh, the, in the U.S., the company pleaded guilty to a the felony, and three of its senior uh, executives paid also a large fine, and I think they pleaded guilty to misdemeanors. But again, no one... No one went to jail. So uh, the, presumably that the, the inner workings and the, the wranglings that go on behind the scenes are, you know, that's really more for, uh, um, for lawyers. And I, it's, I, I can't comment on that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I personally, if, uh, if someone, if some member of the family was found guilty of criminal activity and went to jail, I would not be one shedding a tear for them. I think it might actually be a useful lesson for uh, for executives and companies that uh, are primarily profit-driven to realize that, that sometimes uh, actions uh, that companies take can have, can have ruinous effects on societies. Dr. Yearlink, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. Um, you take this really complicated topic and you not only make it easy to digest, but I think you allow people to uh, get, gain some insight where they can have a bit of sympathy for people that are dealing with this. And I think that we need more sympathy on this okay, for action. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. He's a head of clinical pharmacology at the University of Toronto. His name is Dr. David Yearlink. And uh, just talking about the Purdue Pharma maker of opioid painkiller OxyContin filing for bankruptcy.